0: The big two things we work on that we talk about as a staff is one that it's enjoyable and fun. So that's long lasting that majority of the kids that we work with are probably not going to play at the collegiate level. Like we want them to that's our, you know, we want that for them if they want it, but most parents come to saying, this has been the best thing that my kid has done for like, their mental health, their social health. Like they, Mm -hmm. they love coming to the gym. So our number one overarching goal is to make sure that the kids enjoy it. So that way, after their time with us, after they graduate high school or whatever, they move on to college, whatever they do, hopefully we taught them enough and relatively general exercise knowledge that they can go to the rec center and work out and actually have a decent idea of what they're doing, where they enjoyed it. And then that way we can help basically get kids to stay healthy longer than just
1: they 18. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by Brandon Smithley. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, because let me tell you, it was quite a doozy obviously had all the regular stuff that I do on a weekly basis, whether it's content creation, coaching clients, trying to be an amazing dad, you know, you got all those things going on. But then I also got to attend and speak at the Raise the Bar seminar this past weekend. So leading up to that, there's a lot of work and a lot of preparation going on because the topic that I presented on, which is the soft skills necessary to be a great trainer or coach is not something I've ever really talked about in a formal environment in the past. Now, you know, I've talked about it a little bit here on the podcast, maybe in the complete coach cert, I talk about it in a handful of places, but I think this is a really critical piece of the puzzle. And it's something that, you know, I really tried to lead hard with when I was talking about this in the presentation is like, look, we love to geek out on exercise selection and sets and reps and rest periods and, you know, choosing the absolute best triple block periodization to get little Johnny throwing five miles an hour faster. But look, man, like soft skills are really, really critical. So things that we don't always talk about in these kinds of environments, whether it's listening, empathy, communication skills, how to motivate your coaches or how to motivate your clients and athletes, even down to like the culture and environment that you're working out of, these are absolutely critical pieces of the puzzle. So I'm pretty proud of myself, honestly, uh, feeling myself just a little bit because I was super nervous, like way more nervous than usual, because it's not a topic that I presented on in that kind of environment. And it's definitely not something that people think of me as, right? So when most people would think of Mike Robertson, they would think of, oh, he writes programs and he knows how to coach and cue people, whatever. So going in there and talking about soft skills was definitely out of my wheelhouse, but you know, I took that challenge, I was proud of myself, and I really hope that the attendees that were there got a lot out of the talk. So obviously it was great to attend an event, like a real live event with real live people, um, and not just great to interact with the attendees, but man, so many of my good friends were there, some that I hadn't seen in many, many years. Like, you know, I kind of keep tabs on Luca. I mean, that's my guy. I always try and keep tabs on Luca, and generally we would cross paths. Minimum two, but more like three or four times a year. And he's like, bro, I think it's been like two and a half years since I've seen you. And it's like crazy to think like that. But, you know, I got to hang out with Luca. I got to see Dan John and catch up with him. Sat down probably three or four times with Nick Winkleman and had some great discussions. Man, I wish I would have had like a hot mic so I could just get some of the back and forth that he and I had because he's so introspective and he's always thinking about stuff. I got to talk for probably like two hours with my girl Molly Galbraith. Amazing to see what she's doing with Girls Gone Strong and how she's become such a great leader and how she's organized such an amazing team around her to be successful. So I got time with her. I got to hang out with John Berardi. I mean, look, I'll tell it here, but I mean, you may not know who Mike Robertson is. You may not be listening to this podcast if it wasn't for John Berardi taking a chance on me in 2003 and basically giving me the green light to reach out to TC Luoma and write an article for T Nation. So it was great catching up with all those people. I'm sure I forgot a lot of people. Shout out to Derek Mendoza and uh, Nick Lamb, who put on just a world-class event. I mean, that lineup was stacked. Also, now I'm thinking, oh man, I saw Tony Gentilcore, I saw Lee Boyce, like just an amazing lineup of speakers. But the thing I want to leave you with is this. Whenever I attend an event like this, as fun as it is to hang out and you listen to some presentations and you talk to the people, one thing that... I can never do is when i walk away from these events i can never think smaller and and let me explain i always feel like when i walk away from these events like it's time to level up it's time to go a little bit harder so like the things that i was assuming were good enough or that i was challenging myself i talk to other people and i'm like dang like they're even trying to get to another level now there's two lessons here lesson one is it's okay to be motivated by others Right, and not in a comparative sense, but to be like, damn, Molly's killing it with Girls Gone Strong. John Russell's killing it with his certs. Man, Luca is just killing it with his YouTube and his Instagram and all the great content that he's doing, like, man, it, it legitimately fires me up to see them doing this. But here's the other side of that. It's cool to wanna level up, but also understand like, hey, I'm always playing my game and I'm running my race. And I think this is really important because too often it's one or the other right? You start to compare and it's in a negative sense like, oh, I'm not doing that. So I'm not doing good enough or I'm a failure. No. Or you start thinking, oh, well, that's what they're doing. That's what I have to do. And that's not true either. So whether it's at an event, whether you're talking to somebody new or you're following somebody new on Instagram or YouTube or wherever, hey man, respect what they're doing. If they're trying to level up and get better, good for them. Take what you can away from that while also being respectful to the fact that you have to do you. And you have to take care of yourself and you have to play your own game. So I'm going to leave you with that because I think that's a powerful thing to marinate on for a little bit. And man, again, walking away from that event, I'm so fired up. I got all these ideas, all these things I want to start working on. And for me, it's just about that 1% better every day. What are little things that I can start doing right now to create better content, to get more videos out, to make the podcast a little bit better, to make the cert You know, just a little bit better to take it to the next level, to get it in the hands of more trainers, coaches, rehab professionals that need it. So that's where I'm at, man. I'm super excited, super just, I mean, fired up, man. I walked away really fired up and I'm jet lagged. I'm not going to tell you that whole story. It was quite the uh, debacle getting to and from the event. But man, the energy and just kind of that inner motivation that I have now to go out and keep pressing and to keep getting better is like, it's, it's there, it's there. So that's enough for me. We're gonna take a quick break. Then we're gonna jump into this awesome new episode with my guy, Brandon Smitley. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me, or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to 599 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is, that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content, yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple, restart IFAST University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of IFAST University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed off. We'd love to have you on board. Brandon Smitley has been a strength coach and performance athlete for well over a decade. Brandon has worked with clients and athletes from 10 year olds to professional athletes to 70 plus year young adults looking to be better grandparents. Brandon has held all time world records in powerlifting, is a valued member of elite FTS and co-owns Terre Haute Intensity, Resistance, and Sports Training, or Thirst for short, with his wife, Adrian. In this show, Brandon and I talk a ton about youth athletic development. We start by talking about his overarching philosophy and the biggest issues he sees when training young athletes. We talk about the struggles we all face in getting young athletes to actually take time off and train versus simply hanging out and playing their sports 24-7, 365. And since he's a power lifter, we even take a little bit of time to talk about conjugate training and the differences between conjugate and concurrent training. This was a great episode, some really solid back and forth, and I really hope you're going to enjoy it. But enough for me, let's do this. Brandon, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah. So my name is Brandon Svelly. I'm the co owner of what most people you know as Thirst, but Tarot Intensity Resistance Sports Training. That's a gym that me and my wife uh, own together. We primarily work with youth athletes uh, from 10 to 18 years old. We've worked with college athletes and some pro athletes as well, but that's our target demographic. We also work with the average adult just looking to move better, feel better, and kind of just dominate life. And so I'm a Purdue alumni. Anybody that's followed me knows I'm a diehard Purdue guy and I wrestled. So I'm also really big into wrestling. So I've been in sports for as long as I can remember from basketball at five and you know, soccer at that age and then up into my competitive powerlifting days. So sports has been a big part of my life and that's kind of the driving force of why
1: I do what I do. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I like that, that mantra of dominate life. My guy, Luca Hasavar uh, used to always describe it as being harder to kill. I like that one too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Either one, dominating life, being yeah. harder to kill, both awesome. Cool, cool. So yeah. so what led you to the physical preparation side? Was it just your interest in sports or what was it? Uh, so initially, I actually wanted to be an athletic trainer. My cousin did that
0: and I shadowed him in high school as part of one of my high school classes. And I thought, you know, this is like really cool. You're around athletes all the time. You're You're basically trying to take care of them because nobody wants to get hurt. And so I shat, and I thought this was really cool. And so that's kind of how I started. And then I was like, this is great, but I don't want to you know, wrap ankles and, and provide ice. And there's a great place for that. But to me, it was just kind of repetitive over and yes. over. And I was like, how can we prevent that? And that's kind of how strength and conditioning got on my radar. And I loved to lift weights at the time. So I was like, this makes a little more sense. I just not been exposed to the strength and conditioning piece of Athletic performance because when I was in high school, not that I'm old by any means, but I didn't have a strength coach. I was just a PE guy. I was like, "Oh, we're just going to squat today and bench the next day." And you know, I really didn't think about it making me that much better in sports. I was a teenage kid just wanted to put on some muscle. And as a lightweight wrestler, that was very important to me. Right. I only wrestled at 125 pounds my senior year. So, oh man, um, even when I competed in powerlifting, I wasn't very big. So that's kind of how it got me into that. And I just basically I never stopped going once I found it.
1: I love it. I love it. And then last but not least, give us an idea of your career trajectory. Like, did you go to school for this? What jobs did you have? Because, you know, oh, everybody always has this idea of, oh, I'm going to go open my own facility right out the gate. And often that's not the way that it goes. So talk to us about your career path.
0: Yeah. So that was definitely, I would say it's a pipe dream. I think anybody that gets in this field, would be like, you know, it'd be nice to be my own boss, or have my own gym and do the things that the way that I want to do it. But for a lot of people, they realize oh, that's not always the best sometimes job security wise, or, you know, being around college athletes, you know, I've got good friends that are in the college realm and that's the atmosphere they love. Like, it's just, high energy all the time and i think Brett thought talks about it best there's some people when they walk into a room like they do great but when they're done they got to like step away and recharge and there's other people that, like they feed off that that's how they constantly keep going right and i realized after spending a lot of time in a college room like well i loved it when i was done i was like man i gotta go home and just chill <laughs> that was so <laughs> yeah. much energy out of me yeah so that's kind of what led me to the the private sector was like you know i can get that same kind of vibe but i don't feel like i have to recharge all the time. And yes. um, so after I finished up at Purdue and doing a couple internships at the D1 level, I was basically training some athletes out of another guy's gym. He saw my powerlifting stuff and saw that that's what I wanted to do. So he kind of took me underneath his wing, taught me some stuff. And I was continuing to read and being a part of Lead FTS, I obviously had a lot of good resources at my hand in terms of yes. just learning from people, traveling and learning from people. JL Holdsworth is a big guy that does a great job working with athletic performance. So I've spent a lot of time talking to JL. Like, this is kind of more of what I want to do. So I continue to train athletes underneath that guy. I had a part-time job as well. And I decided, you know, I'm gonna go back to grad school. I'm gonna try to improve my education a little bit more, make sure I can stand out a little bit better. And at the same time, still spend more time in the college realm so I could learn more. So I really tried to be around the field as much as I could. Any opportunity I got a chance to be around athletes, I took it. Yep. And I finished that out. I plowed through grad school in about a year and a half. I just never stopped doing it. <laughs> I decided if I stopped, I, w- I was not going to want to go back. Yep. And then I basically just chipped my way into it, into where I went interned with Will Fleming. I just honestly... Followed Will's stuff on T Nation. And I was like, he's in Bloomington. That's literally less than an hour away from my house. Yeah, I'd be stupid to not see if I can go off, you know, spend some time with Will. Will took me on as an intern. Just, I just shot him an email. Like, I didn't have like a formal process. I just told him what I was looking to do. He thought I fit the bill nicely there. And I was there for about three or four months. I was very lucky that he offered, offered me a job. But at grad school, I was having my school paid for. So I was gonna, like, do you I know, leave grad school right. to do this awesome job that I like? Or, you know, do I finish grad school? I made the tough decision just to finish grad school I ended up in good contact with Will. And Will's helped me every step of the way in terms of opening my facility. He kind of gave me some do's and some don'ts and what worked well for him and what didn't with force. And basically I just chipped away at jobs and saved money until I got my facility to open. And a big part of that was my powerlifting career. Dave Tate helped me a lot um, in terms of me competing and supporting me every step of the way and making connections It just kind of landed one thing into another where the space opened up. I had the resources, me and my wife were engaged. And then we were like, now's the time. Like it was just yeah. right in front of us. And so we just made the leap and it's kind of went ever since.
1: Okay. So I don't have like a lot of powerlifting questions in here. I think I got one in the lightning round, but I want to call attention to this real quick. Like if you've never competed in powerlifting or you don't know what that community is like, it's genuinely one of the most supportive communities I've ever been a part of right? Yes, like no those, doubt. those names you just named, like, those guys were influential on me. But it was just like 1015 years ago. Right? Yep. Like, I mean, I remember going to the old at the time, Dave was calling them force training seminars. Like I went to one of those in 2001. You know, and then like eight, nine years later to be on their q&a staff and helping out with all the things that they did Going to the the underground strength sessions and helping the guys like, it's just a wonderful community to be a part of. And like you said, like those guys are so great, not just in the, the training side, but on the business side too, because they're running very successful businesses as well.
0: Yes, yeah, yes, I agree.
1: That's awesome. Okay, so there are a handful of topics I want to dive into today, but you kind of gave me a short list and I'm excited because I want to start by talking about conjugate, okay? So let's start very base level here. If you had to describe conjugate training to someone that was new to all this, How would you do that? How would you describe conjugate? I would describe
0: it as heavy days, light days, fluff days, just very three simple ways to look at it. And from there, it kind of blows out of how serious you want to take it. I think when you look at most training models, people know you've got to lift heavier, to get stronger, to produce force. You've got to do something fast, especially if you're talking athletic performance realm, you've got to move fast to be fast. And then you've usually got your fluff kind of thrown in there wherever it needs to be, depending upon the sports, the needs and time of year and all that kind of stuff. So those are the three ways that I would describe that system. Very simply, if somebody didn't have much training background at all and they were like, I want to kind of learn more about this. That's where I would start in the simple realms.
1: Okay, perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but I also feel like there are a lot of myths and misconceptions when it comes to conjugate. So kind of a two-parter here. One, would you agree with that? And two, if you do, what are some of the biggest like questions or concerns or myths that you deal with when it comes to conjugate style training?
0: Yes, there's definitely myths. Probably a lot, depending upon what population you would talk to. I think the average person that Knows of conjugate, knows it from Westside Barbell yes. and Louis Simmons, um, rightfully so. Definitely popularized it for the powerlifting community. But I think a lot of people that aren't in Dallas in the field don't know that that system actually came from Russia, more from weightlifting side. And yeah. So basically, Louis has taken that and brought it into the powerlifting side. Louis popularized it, and of course, back before I was big into any kind of strength and conditioning people were trying to find how to get bigger in the weight room for sports. And they saw what Louis' guys were doing in terms of numbers <laughs> with the system. And they're like, our linemen have got to be able to lift like this. Our linebackers, like we right. need this at the collegiate level, because at the time and still to this day, for the most part, like the, the NCAA revenue piece comes from football. So the bigger and better athletes you have at football, the more advantage you can get. Um, I think Nebraska wouldn't agree, considering they kind of founded strength and conditioning at the collegiate level, right? Uh, how important that was. Um, and so I think it's just kind of trickled down into our community. And then now the big myth is it's only for powerlifters. you if you're not training at Westside, you know, you're not doing West Side, which is true to an extent, but you can still take conjugate principles from Louis. And I think it's the best thing I took from going to West Side and training with Louis was we talked more about training for not powerlifting right. than powerlifting. And you know, two people that like training, I think that's very easy. But most people that just want to get strong in powerlifting, you know, they could care less about it. So that's the nice thing about talking to somebody that's done as much research as he has on the system. And then the other big one is that people feel like you've got to have bands, chains, box squats, and all those other things for conjugate to work. And that's, that's not true. You don't have to do that. I work with lots of people that don't have access to that stuff and we can still use a similar style system to get the progress if they like that style
1: of training. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, the guy that, that really kind of showed me that or that helped me understand that I think was Joe DeFranco. Like, if you go back to the early 2000s, I mean, first off, Joe just had this, like, aura about him, right? Because here's this guy from Jersey. He's in the tank top. You know, he's jacked out of his mind. But when he wrote West Side for Skinny Bastards, I mean, I don't know what T Nation stats were, but that had to be one of their top 10 articles of yeah, that decade. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, because here's a guy that's training some of the best football players in the country, getting them jacked out of their minds, but using a conjugate style for athletes right? Yep. And, and so I thought that was just such a revolutionary article in the sense of, hey, look, you can take these principles that everybody is using with power lifters and morph them and apply them to football players or athletes in general and see amazing results.
0: Correct. Yes, that's 100% right. And I think another person that's done a better job more recently of making that more digestible uh, is Nate Harvey and his Conjugate U book. Okay, uh, I've talked with him pretty extensively about it. And he's got a a lot of really good material in that book. I actually keep it in my gym for my interns to look at whenever we discuss programming principles and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, if, if you want to try to actually see somebody that implemented this for a long time at the collegiate level and successfully, Nate's book is the probably the best place to start because he he literally breaks everything down of kind of like where you would put your your certain terms of blocks and what you're trying to go after. He gives you all the exercise options, and um, it's almost kind of like a plug and play kind of deal for most people that are newer to it. And then yeah. you obviously gain more experience and you can start implementing the things that you want to try to and play with it more. And that's kind of where we've, uh, when we talk, we kind of, were looking at, you know, like how you would implement cleans and things like that in there, but that's also the, probably the best resource outside of Joe DeFranco's. Those two are definitely the best.
1: Hmm. I have not heard of that book. Shame on me. I'm going to have to find it. I might have to find <laughs> Nate good. and bring him on. Cause yeah, I haven't, I'm not familiar yeah. with his stuff, but that would be great. So talk to me about how you're applying conjugate because this will kind of go seamlessly into our next theme. But talk to me about how you're applying conjugate with your kids, right? Because like you alluded to, you train a lot of like 10 to 18 year olds. So how does that look for you in your private sector setting?
0: I think the first thing I want to make sure I clarify for people is that there's a difference between conjugate and concurrent training. Um, okay. I think people say conjugate and they think, you know, Safety bars, box wide band chains, that's conjugate when when reality a lot of training has conjugate style principles built into it. We don't think about it. And the easiest way I can describe that is progressions and regressions. The way you progress exercises in an actual order is the conjugate piece of your your programming. So you know, if you're working with somebody in an off season, you know, you might have them do a safety bar box squat to relieve their hips a little bit, you know, make sure their hands aren't behind their backs, especially if they're like an overhead athlete or something like that. Right. And then as you seamlessly get closer towards the season, then you might, all right, well, we're going to move towards a front squat. And then as we get close to preseason, maybe we go with a front rack split squat. So that we're doing some single leg work for that athlete. And then we can start adding in some accommodating resistance to work on the force piece, whether they need more eccentric loading with bands, or if you're just trying to give them some overload and work on that speed, you could then add chains. And then you can obviously pair that with some jumps or whatever as well, if you're really trying to do like some fringe contrast training or something like that. So when I think of conjugate, I think of things progressing like that, especially in the powerlifting realm, um, people don't think enough about that, I don't think. So that would be how I would describe the conjugate piece of your training. Your concurrent piece is what most people I think think of as you've got your max effort, your dynamic effort, and your repetition effort. Those are all trained in the same microcycle so that you're constantly training all those qualities year-round. And with your athletes, that's what I think of is that we do way more concurrent training. than my high school kids will do a little bit of conjugate stuff in terms of how I'm sequencing stuff. Like that's a very common sequence that I like to use with baseball players. Um, when the shoulders feeling good, but still improve lower body strength, get them comfortable in the front rack position. Uh, take that box away. That way they can learn to absorb that force all the way down and then put them in a single leg stance, considering if they're pitching or running or having to hit or whatever, they shift all that weight back. That seems to work really well for a lot of our kids, at least at the high school level. Now the concurrent piece, we make sure that all of our athletes run jump throw to some extent. They all have some kind of strength piece. They all have some kind of hypertrophy piece. They all have some kind of obviously trunk prehab piece. And that almost just fills out our program right there. I mean, you think right. there's quite a bit to cover, that's probably gonna be most of your training session. You might get one, you might be able to, you know, dab in there a little bit. Like if you're doing a front rack split squat, you can get your strength, your single leg piece and all that kind of stuff from it. So when your accessory work, you can maybe do some glue ham raises or whatever you wanna try to fill in there for your post your chain work a little bit. So when it comes to our athletes, we just make sure we check all those boxes, basically year round, and then we push more what we wanna push based on the season. If they're in season or preseason, we're gonna push the power speed General strength development a little bit. If they're out of season, we might pull back a little bit on that and do some more hypertrophy work. Especially if they're a smaller kid, and they need to gain some gain some weight, put some muscle on. Then that's what we push during that time of year. So when it comes to the conjugate piece with our populations, I would say it's just the high schoolers that we really do that. Yep. The middle schoolers, it's about just progressing them slowly and slowly making sure they move better, and then that's still kind of somewhat conjugate because you're progressing things the way they should be. Right. But you're not trying to strategically pick if we use a seventh grader, for example, we're not trying to go with a goblet box squat to, you know, like a reverse band squat of some <laughs> kind or anything like that. Like it's just, right. it's just too much for them. We want to address movement qualities first. And then as they've been with us and then maturity kicks in, we think they're able to earn barbell stuff. Then we stick with the basics. It's usually said our juniors and seniors, have some training history that we can get a little bit more experimental with them. And now that I've done this long enough, I kind of know what works well for a lot of kids and what has just completely backfired and been like, right, <laughs> it was a waste of time. So
1: yes, yes. Well, this is perfect because, you know, just talking about the work that you do with your young kids, you've got a unique setup in the fact that you are getting some of these kids in middle school and then transitioning. in yeah, the gym's been open three years, but man, you have the potential to train some of these kids seven, eight years. Yeah. If they're starting when they're 10 years old. So I would love to hear you describe your overarching training philosophy when it comes to kids that age. Like, how would you describe that? The big two things we work on that we talk about as a staff is one that it's
0: enjoyable and fun, so that that's long lasting, that majority of the kids that we work with are probably not going to play at the collegiate level. Like we want them to, that's our, you know, we want that for them if they want it but most parents come to saying this has been the best thing that my kid has done for like their mental health their social health like they Mm -hmm. they love coming to the gym and i never would have thought that my 11 12 13 year old girl would like lifting weights being around that atmosphere so our number one overarching goal is to make sure that the kids enjoy it so that way after their time with us after they graduate high school or whatever they move on to college whatever they do hopefully we taught them enough and relatively general exercise knowledge that they can go to the rec center and work out and actually have a decent idea of what they're doing where they enjoyed it. And then that way we can help basically get kids to stay healthy longer than just till they're 18. Um, So that's our number one goal. Our number two goal um, is to make sure that what we're doing is completely safe and effective. And that parents understand that even though I'm a powerlifter, your kid's not going to powerlift. We're working (laughs) with athletes first, and then the powerlifting stuff is just what I do. So don't think what I do it's going to be what your kids do. Um, and then we want to you know teach them how to train safely and effectively. So, you know, we give them some fun stuff here. You know, they always bring us, hey, here's what LeBron James is doing or Steph Curry or whatever. Right. That's great. You're not in their shoes. The question you want to ask them is what did or what would have LeBron James or Steph Curry done when they were 12? And I think right. a lot of times if you would get the opportunity to talk to some people, like they'd be like, what you're doing right now is perfect. You know, right. learning to master your body weight, change direction, learn how to make cuts, Develop some gluten hamstring strength, generally where kids are a little bit deficient, um, and just overall good body awareness. Because um, with today's specialization, kids, if they don't have to move side to side, they can't move side to side. Oh, I like, know. I'm amazed I know. at how many kids can't do a lateral lunge. And while I'm not the greatest example with the way that I'm built, I can still do one relatively well because I make sure that I've played sports my whole life. But that linear piece and lateral change of direction, I think for a lot of kids, you can just tell they, they sit inside and play video games. And if Our two hours that we get with Johnny helps Johnny move better, feel better, prevent disease and everything else. I think as a whole, Thirst is doing its job for our community. And then, you know, hopefully eventually the world as they go on and do stuff with their kids and their family in the future.
1: Dude, preach my guy. Like I literally just did a podcast. I went on somebody else's show earlier this week. I don't know when it's going to drop, but we have this exact discussion, right? So, you know, I think people are wising up to the fact that like not every kid that trains at an athletic performance center of some sort is getting a scholarship, right? Like, it's just not going to happen. Like maybe it gives you an advantage, but you're not going to, you might not get one. Right. So this is one of the big things that I always try and push with my parents because a lot of them, like, look, a lot of them are living through their kids. Right. So the scholarship is as much for them as it is for their kid. But the way I always pitch it is, Hey, look, man, like, I can't guarantee that they get a scholarship. Here's what I can guarantee. We're going to teach them all the right things, right? We're going to teach them how to move well, take care of their body, do the things necessary so they're comfortable in a weight room. I said, we're going to give them all the physical tools that we can to help them be successful and maybe get that. But even if they don't, and this is how I sell it, even if they don't, right, they're going to be so much better able to take care of their bodies for the rest of their lives. And so when I sell it like that, then the parents have like, Not just one reason. It's not just tied to the scholarship anymore, but it's like, oh man, Susie or little Johnny or whoever is going to be able to take care of themselves the rest of their life. It's like selling them something they didn't even know that they wanted. Right. Right. So it helps them justify the cost. Cause look, I mean, at the end of the day, we're an expendable cost, right? We're not food or shelter. So yeah, if you give them that second option and that soft landing, I find that has been incredibly successful for us.
0: Yeah, I I would agree. And with COVID, I think it's opened that to me more is that whenever we were allowed to reopen and things kind of lightened up a little bit, almost the first thing that parents realized their kids weren't getting was physical activity at school. And so they're like, how can I get my kid physical activity with all this e-learning and stuff like that? You know, because and for the e-learning, I don't know how it is where you guys are. Most of it was like, here's what you need to do today. And the PE teacher would send off 20 jumping jacks and 10 pushups and whatever. Or if you did something outside, you'd have to write down what you did outside. And so I think a lot of parents were like, my kid's not doing that. They're just saying they did it right. to get the A. And right. so then they do some Google research and we pop up, like, oh, this is actually might be beneficial my kids they're going to get them at least moving and exercise and they're going to be monitored and you know the the workouts that they're having is going to be tailored towards them so that it meets them where they're at it's not overly advanced or too easy and that almost just like came by storm to where we still to this day have kids that work out with us merely because of covid and we've generated a good enough culture and atmosphere where the kid truly enjoys it that the kid wants to stay. like it's not about getting massive quads and arms the atmosphere is fun the workouts are enjoyable like they're learning how to do stuff they're saying it's more advantageous than the pe that they're getting at school and parents hear their kids say that and they're like well this is worth every penny yes like so for us that makes us feel very very proud of what we're doing because that wasn't really exactly our target audience. So if we get kids like that, that's absolutely fantastic because hopefully, like we said, after they're 18, they continue to go to the weight room and stay physically active. And then we've hopefully helped that kid in the long-term breed that on with other people and friends and see how important that is.
1: For sure. So you you talked about e-learning. Literally one of the first days that Cade had to do e-learning during COVID, now keep in mind he was, I don't know, first grade, whatever he was. He had to take a picture of him setting up to throw. That was his PE for the day. I'm like, really? Like he didn't even have to throw something. Like <laughs> a picture of him setting up to throw. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, but I mean, look, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 43, so I'm, I'm getting up there a little bit. But like, I just know how much PE and gym class has changed over the years. And this is not to knock PE teachers because a lot of them know like this isn't how it should be. And they'd love to yep. change it. They can't. But yeah, I mean, I think Kendall has maybe one out of every three or four weeks where she actually has to do PE. The other week, she has other stuff. So that's like once a month where she actually has a PE class that she goes to. And that's assuming that they're going to be physically active that whole time. True. Sometimes it's like one class, it was, hey, design a game. That was what they did in PE. They designed a game. They didn't play the game. They designed the game. So. It's crazy. It's
0: very interesting. Yeah, It is.
1: It is. Okay. So I don't want to get on my soapbox here because obviously <laughs> maybe I need to do a solo show on this, but I'm interested in your thoughts. Like what are the biggest issues that you deal with when it comes to training these kids age 10 to 18? Like what are the big physical things that you're noticing?
0: The first is just general body awareness, kind yeah. of like where they're at in space. And we use a very, very rough FMS and we meet with them because again we've not seen the kids do anything. So we yeah. ask them to do a squat. We ask them to do a lunge. We ask them to we set up a plastic hurdle and just ask them to step over it back and forth a couple of times just to see, you know, can they even keep their balance as they go to step over something? Uh, we ask them to do either push-ups from their knees or their from their feet depending if they're a boy or a girl. Um, we have them do a sample bird dog um, just to see if they can keep their hip balance. Things like that. Yep. Um, so it's, it's very rudimentary FMS, but at least let's just see them move. And that's the big thing, without a doubt, is just whenever they do something, they're kind of just like all over the place. They you can tell that they've not had to have that spatial awareness unless they play a ton of sports. Those kids generally succeed. Those activities they are asking them to do much better. Yeah, um, the, the next thing would be I've never this is if you ever work with kids and you want to see how athletic they are, I would say the best thing to have to do is bear crawl variations forward Mm. reverse side to side the the variety of bear crawls that we see is sometimes comical (laughs) but 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 at other times you're just like how did somebody teach you to bear crawl like this or why is this the default position that that works best for you and a lot of times you can see shoulder and hip mobility issues do they have a strong enough midsection to be able to keep everything tabletop flat like do they run out of gas by the time they go our turf is 25 yards can they make it 25 yards without stopping? Right. And like, that's a pretty, you're really limited on space and don't know the FMS. Like I would say, if you're going to screen kids, try that and just watch what they do. And I think you'll quickly realize, hey, they can't get hip flexion. Their, their ankles are super stiff. Their shoulders, they don't reach overhead very well or their butt's way up in the air because <laughs> they don't have the abdominal strength to, to keep everything flat. Right. So just general like body awareness, I think is the first one. And the second one is that kids in general don't understand the value of strength in terms of performance they say hey you don't want to hit harder throw faster do all this stuff and so they think oh i need parents all the time oh johnny needs to bench press or whatever and it's like these aren't really great performance indicators if we can get your kid to own a split squat if we can get your kid to own how to hinge if we can get them to do a couple bodyweight weight push-ups at 10 to 12 years old watch how much more athletic your kid's going to be with very simple stuff like that versus trying to get a barbell in their hands as soon as you can and we have a real rule in our facility that if your kid is seventh grade or under we don't let them use barbells for any major movements whatsoever maybe a landmine press right but that's about the end that it goes everything else is dumbbells kettlebells, med balls body weight sleds ropes bands you know very things things that can go well in your facility where they can be paired and you don't have to wait on equipment and things like that and also Safety is the big one. It's harder to teach a back squat to a kid than it is a goblet squat. So, for sure. Um, I think that that big conundrum that kids think they need to back squat to get better, especially as we get to the older populations, is the big driving factor. I try to get them to not understand, like, hey, it's a tool but we don't have to use that tool. There might be a better tool yes. to let you throw harder, or pitch harder or run faster or whatever. Now, if you want to power lift, then yeah, we got to teach you that, but we'll wait till after your baseball, soccer, whatever days are over, then we can focus more on that particular exercise, especially in our facility. At the high school, college level, I understand resources, time are very finite. So you got to make do with the best that you can with what you have. But right. the private sector like ours, like we shouldn't have to be pigeonholed into that.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. Okay, so... I'm interested in this because, again, you're a powerlifter, right? And you're saying, you know, a lot of your young kids don't use a barbell. It took me a long time to figure that out. Now, granted, I'm quite a bit older than you, I think. So, like, all the, I would say, like, this progression in training has evolved the last 10 to 12 years, right? Where it's, like, okay to not back squat. Remember, like, 10 years ago, like, if it, you, like, you didn't even have to call it a back squat. Like, if you said squat, it was just, like, known. Yep. It's a back squat. Did you just kind of come into that? Is that something you figured out on your own? Like, how did that come about?
0: I would say that the the big place that I caught on to that was probably from being with Elite FTS and watching a lot of the other coaches talk about how they work with kids. And I'm like, there's not very many sixth, seventh, fifth graders doing any kind of like major barbell work. Now, when you start getting to high school, and whatever, like it started to happen. And I was like, I kind of wonder why this is. And I, I kind of talked to Will Fleming about it when I interned with him. And he was basically saying, you know, it's, it's a tool. If I'm working with weightlifters, then, you know, we're going to do that because we got to get the legs stronger. But if we're working with younger kids, if we can gobble a squat, we've got, you know, hundred some pound dumbbells. If they can't do that, then what's the point of putting a barbell on their back? You know? Right. So that kind of like opened my eyes that this is definitely a means to an end. And so as I was working in that other person's facility, training athletes, he was somebody that coming from a powerlifting background, wanted to see kids conventional deadlift and back squat. And I had to like pitch my case hard, right. I was just like, man, like, I'm working with a 12 year old, like, I, I don't, I understand this is a good exercise, but it's not a good exercise for this girl. Right. And I think that's the ultimate question is, you know, the context of the implement you're trying to use is First and foremost. And you know, being a 12-year-old girl, she's probably not there by her choice in more cases <laughs> than not. It was right. probably dad's idea. Yep. And so we want to make sure that something that she enjoys and she can kind of buy into. And as she builds that confidence and, and enjoys what she's doing, then maybe when she gets to that 14, 15-year-old age, maybe we can start looking into some, you know, heavier barbell-based work because she's obviously comfortable with it. But if we can get the buy-in piece first. Everything else will fall into place. But if we can't get that buy-in because we're doing something the kid doesn't want to do or enjoy, or it's over complicated or intimidating, then we may never see that kid again. And then yeah. we're doing more harm than good, which is, you know, like what we said for our facility, that's not not our goal. So buy-in is a big piece of that. And that's kind of basically and I basically never have got off that soapbox since. Like even as a power lifter, just like you have to talk about context. Context comes before anything else with any exercise or however whatever implement you're trying to use for your, Your performance goals it's be yourself or athletes or kids or whatever.
1: Yeah, that's such a great point. And something that you mentioned in there that I want to come back to is this idea of confidence, right? Like confidence in the weight room. So I've been around barbells for a long time, right? Like I've trained in some form or fashion for like 25, 26 years now. So like I'm comfortable going in a gym, right? Like barbell, dumbbell, kettlebell, like whatever implement, I'm cool with that. But one of my clients... I think it was an older gal that told me this is probably like 10, 11 years ago now. And she's just like, you know, like if you've never been in a gym or you've never been around like this kind of environment before, like a trap bar is scary. And I like I never would have thought of that. So that perspective she gave me because, you know, I was like, look, like you're picking up more here with this kettlebell than you are this trap bar. And she's like, yeah, but if I would have started with the trap bar, I never would have done it. You know, so like you said, that's a great point. Like you give them that running room, you give them that momentum so that like, hey, I'm comfortable picking up a kettlebell or whatever else it is. So when it's time to pick up a trap bar or a barbell, whatever the case may be, then there's so much more confidence there. And they feel like, oh, this is not an issue. This is just the next thing that I do.
0: Right. And it, it's for for our kids that we let progress to a barbell based activity let's you know generally we go from like if we're doing a goblet base position our next jump would be a front squat yeah we wouldn't do a back squat first but we let the parents and the kids know that hey our our goal for our eighth grade boys you've got to be able to do a 55 pound dumbbell clean as a whistle for 10 reps regardless of what you weigh so it's got to look good it's got to get coaches permission to pass all that kind of stuff and then once you hit that benchmark We finish out your training block with the goblet squat. So let's see if we can push it a little bit more. And then your next one, then we level you up into the front squat. And so when most kids hear about, hey, there's a number you have to obtain and a certain amount of reps, there's nothing scientific about what we pick. It's just what we try to think is it's been a good range. It's not service bad. Um, And like for RDLs, for example, for girls, it's 95 pounds for 10 reps. It's just a 25 pound weight on each side of the bar. It's nothing special, but for some girls, that's a big deal to go from moving that 10 on that bar to a 25. That's yep. a pretty big deal. And that's how we move them to any kind of trap bar deadlifting is making sure their hinging looks well. Because what we found is if they can RDL or 95 or 10 pounds or 10 times, I'm sorry, when they go to deadlift, we almost don't have to fix anything. If we taught them how to hinge well and how to right. squat well and we put them in the trap bar, it almost just like happens. It's, yeah. it's super easy. It makes our job easier as coaches. And then it also builds their confidence that, hey, I went from this exercise, that was pretty hard, it was pretty challenging, but now I'm going to this more you know, challenging exercise that's a little bit more intimidating. I'm gonna be able to use more weight because they see the other kids doing it. You know, We've got kids that are trap bar four or 500 pounds in high school, which is unreal. And they're like, right. man, that kid's really strong. Well, he started where you did. I, right. I assure you that he did not day one, go to the trap bar. Um, that's not how we fly. So yeah. that, that, that watching the kids move in the room like that, it's almost like graduating to the next thing. And, um, I'm reading a book now. Uh, I think it's called something with do with moments. I can't remember now off the top of the head what the book is, but it talks about creating those moments for people that that's memorable. And that is very memorable for people of learning when they got to go to the trap bar, when they got the front squad and things like that. And so we kind of try to celebrate that so that the kids understand like, hey, this is the next piece that we want you to do. But you should be proud of that because we have some kids that will take six to seven months to get to that point because we just – We've got to get them to move better. And you know, you've done a good job of doing what we've asked you to do. You graduate on, and then now we can load you more, help you move better, things like that. So that's a that's been a huge, huge thing for us. I never would have thought would have been a big deal. And after three years, I'm like, this is kind of like the the one of the big three things that kids look forward to is graduating to barbell based movements.
1: That's cool. It's almost like the belt system in martial arts, right? Going from a white belt to a yellow belt and all that. That's awesome, man. Okay. So one more on this topic. And this is more of a logistics question. But I find one issue that we always come up against with our kids is just finding time for them to actually come in and train, right? Like finding time in the schedule. So I'm interested. Is that something you deal with as well? And if so, how do you pitch it to the parents or the kids that this needs to be a priority? Because this is something I'm always trying to like what are you doing? What are you doing? Like finding ways to help people understand like, this is something you got to stick with for the long term.
0: Yeah. It's also definitely a hardest part. I don't know. I don't want to say it's the selling or anything like that. It's just finding the time to make it work. And we do have parents travel. We probably have some kids that travel around, around an hour to come to us. So we've got yeah. a good, pretty good stretch. The one thing I'll give credit to is our point of sale system. So I, I, I kind of grew up with MindBody initially being at Will's place, but we eventually decided to go with what's called Wattify. It's usually pretty big in the CrossFit community, okay. but the scheduling system and stuff works very, very similar. But it gives us a lot of flexibility for the parents to pick what days and time they want. So we set all our scheduling up by the hour at the top of the hour. We operate with a split schedule, so we're open in the morning and we're open in the evening. We're not open in the middle of the, middle of the day. we work with primarily kids. They're all at school. Most of our general clients are at work, so that works really well for us. It gives me and my wife some time to breathe and spend some time mm-hmm. together. We have an app that they can go on and just sign up and pick the best day and time that works well for them. There's obviously constraints of how soon they can sign up and how you know what the last time they can sign up for, and that we limit those sessions. Uh, Based on how many coaches we have available. So, our worst ratio that we offer is a five to one. In most cases, than not, we're like a two to three to one. Right. After school, we usually keep three coaches on the floor. um, And, like Tuesday, for example, nobody was in later in the evening. So, me and my wife got to go home. And then our other (laughs) coach worked with the two kids that was in. So, um, but so that's. The first thing that we pitch is that, hey, this can work around all your practices, your work schedules or whatever. So I think that by itself has helped a lot of parents realize, realize I can get to thirst two days a week and it doesn't have to be the same day in the same time. That's what they hate about their pitching lessons, their catching yeah. lessons, their basketball practice. It's always the same day, the same time. So they've almost got, like they got to be in this like blockish schedule. Like, hey, we're fluid. You just find the days that work best for you. We're there to coach your kids as long as it's not full. The other thing that we try to sell is that I like to use baseball more than anything because I think we were a lot of baseball, softball kids, and it's very easy for parents to understand this. You can go to hitting lessons two or three times a week, and it's not going to help you hit harder. The only thing it's going to help you do is dial in your technique and really understand how to swing a bat. If you know how to swing a bat, especially the high school kids, you don't necessarily need all the pitching or hitting lessons anymore. What you need is a rotational power. You can only get so much with that bat. But right. with the med balls and the strength and conditioning training and if you want to say talk about getting down the first base faster or improving your velocity when you throw again going to pitching coach helps you iron out that technique which can get you a couple miles per hour but at the end of the day more of that's going to come from your backside, your rotation and having a strong shoulder to be able to throw harder and if that's your limiting factor all your pitching lessons in the world are not going to get you the velo that we can get you probably in two three four months right we've had some sixth graders see seven miles an hour on their fastball in three months merely because they learn how to use their legs a strength <laughs> and strength conditioning ability. And they're like, man, that was awesome. Like, I hope I can't like, Hey, that's not repeatable, but that shows how much you were leaving on the table right. by not addressing your underlying weak link of you throwing a baseball. Um, and I think Eric Cressy would probably agree 100% there that many kids are missing out on that piece in terms of they want to chase that velo and they think throwing more is better. And that's where you start dealing with elbow issues and what have you. So for us, we try to say, Hey, if, if skill is important, then you need to go do the skill stuff. If you need to work on how you shoot a basketball or how you do anything like that, then we understand. But if it comes down to learning how to change direction, how to implement your legs into your sport or improve upper body strength or not get pushed around in the paint or something like that, that's us. If that's your number one priority, we need to be your number one priority because we're going to help you do that. Not that we're going to talk trash on the, the skill specific piece, but you just got to ask yourself as a parent athlete, where do you need to do to get better? And a lot of times our box comes higher than parents think it does. And once they realize that, Hey, that's probably pretty true. And it's only two days a week. Like that's pretty manageable for a lot of people. If you right. start act, if you start act factoring in all the stuff that they do. Um, we're probably usually the lowest on the totem pole. We start moving up. And then once the kids in with us, I think also when their kid enjoys it, and they see the changes on the field or court or what have you, they realize that was the big thing that we changed from last year to this year. We've got to keep going. Like we, we've right. got to figure out a way to make this work because it's, it's worked. And I also try to sell the investment piece. Hey, you come in here every day, you're putting a dollar in the box every single time. The more dollars you put in, the farther you can walk away because the longer you're out, I'm going to take a dollar out. And if you end up with nothing left in the jar, all the work you did to begin with slowly goes away. But if you can make those investments in the off season early and you know start plugging in those dollars, then if you only come in once a week for eight weeks, because season's hectic, at least I'm only taking $1 bill out and not three. So, you know, like, at least we're slowing the trickle down effect that when you come back, we jump back in and we can reinvest and build that stockpile up. And I think the kids get that they understand about saving money. Parents definitely understand that about saving money. Right. So that has also been a really good way I like to basically explain that to parents in terms of the investment piece.
1: I love it. I love it. All right, my guy, big question time. If you could alter the space time continuum. And give young Brandon Smitley one piece of advice, what would it be? Network more. Mm.
0: Definitely network more. I feel like I networked well, but our field just has so many intelligent people that specialize in different things and have different resources and different experiences that once you understand where somebody's been and how they've done it, you can probably take one little thing away and use it to help you do your job better. So, like, mobility is not my thing. Movement quality is not my thing. And that's what drove me to go to iFastQ with you guys you and bill. And like that has helped me tremendously. And the big driving force behind that was when I listened to Alex Effer on one of your podcasts and you guys were talking about assessments. And I was like, this is where I'm weak. I, I need to work on my assessment process. Right. Like, I need to understand what I'm looking at. So I took Alex's course learned what I could from Alex, what's Alex doing that's working so well, took the things that I thought that we can implement in our space and it's made it a game changer. And I wanted to learn more and that's where I kind of jumped in with you guys and we have good discussions every month. So I'm all for it.
1: I love it, man. I love it and appreciate the shout out. That's that's very kind of you, thank you. Okay, so last but not least, we got our lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? When kids come
0: back from college or whatever, and they're like, "Man, thanks for teaching what you taught me. I'm doing great in college with this," or we do something very similar, um, or man, I missed the atmosphere of thirst. It's good to see you guys. When kids come back, that lets me know that we left like an everlasting impression on the kid that thirst was part of their journey. We weren't like pit stop and moving on. You know, it was right. one of those. It was almost more of a destination uh, versus the pit stop, and that. That makes me feel like we did a really good job of influencing that that kid for the future.
1: That's awesome, man. Okay, number two. This one might be a little long, but talk to me about the ups and downs of gym ownership. Uh, it's a different beast, I, right? Yeah, the, I, I
0: love the coaching part. And I think that's why most people think they would love to own a gym. Is, man, I get a coach all day or whatever. The pitfalls is the, the business side. There's days that you just got to, you got to do accounting stuff. You got to write programs all the time. Even when you don't want to do it, you've got to maybe stay up late or if somebody calls in sick, you're the guy that's got to fill in, you know, it's your baby. You got to make sure it's taken care of things like that sometimes can get tough, but the past three years, my wife's had cancer and we've had COVID go through, uh, okay you know, going on. So those two big hits in three years were very, very challenging. And I think if now that we survive that, I'm not worried about anything anymore. Yeah. But I, I think people don't expect that. And when you own a business like her getting cancer, that, I mean, that's my, that's my partner when she's down. Like I got to, not only do I got to take care of her, then I got to do all the other business stuff too. Right. So I don't think people think about that that piece of it either. If you're if you're in the partnership, um, her being my wife is obviously a really big piece and it helps me a lot. Um, if I didn't have her, I don't know what I'd do without it. But <laughs> I think any partnership that works like that, I think people understand, like, hey, there's also going to be head buttons too. We butt heads, and right. that's very hard as a <laughs> as a married couple because you know, we love each other dearly, but we might see difference on a programming piece or what this kid can and can't do, or whether that's good enough to move on to the next thing. And, you know, like, man, right. it's, it's, it kind of goes back and forth to the kitchen table a little bit. So that's very challenging too.
1: <laughs> I love it, man. And yeah, uh, you definitely picked a rough time to open. So yeah. if you made it through that, <laughs> yeah. bro, you're good to go. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Number three, I've not followed your powerlifting career all that much. So I'm intrigued. What lift and powerlifting are you the most proud of?
0: Squat hands down. Okay. No question. Why? Um, so in 2014, 2014, I broke the all-time squat world record at 132 for Raw. It used to be held by Richard Hawthorne. I'm sure anybody in the power knows that name very well. Uh, I broke his squat world record by two pounds or a kilo, whatever you want yeah. to call it, at the Arnold. Um, big stage, uh, won a decent amount of money doing that. So that was the first one where I'd, I didn't ever think I could break that record, but my training partners were like, dude, you, you're 20, 30 pounds away. This is going to happen in a couple of years. Right. The dude that was wrapping my knees was like fourth attempt. Dave Tate was there, which is also really cool. Yes. He's like, no, we're taking this on a fourth attempt. I don't care if it piles you to the ground, but you, just <laughs> five, you just smoked 535. All you've got to take is uh, 565. It's 30 pounds. And when you're talking about 500 some pounds, that's right. not, I mean, it's a lot of weight, but it's like really a not
1: 5% increase. Good.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you think of it like so, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a video of me online after I hit it, jumping in knee wraps, which is also pretty comical. <laughs> um, and then I rebroke my own record almost two years later. It was about 22 months later at WPC World. I squatted 567. And that. so for people thinking they're making slow progress, it took me almost two years to add a kilo to my squat. Yeah. So that, that's probably why squat's my, my big thing. I've been, always been good at it, and I've been obviously successful at it.
1: That's, that's cool. And that's why I asked that question, because like, Most people, again, I was a very average power lifter, but most people think of me as a deadlifter because that was my best lift. Actually, I would say I'm most proud of my squat, though, because it was my worst lift and I made it respectable. It's like weird like that. You know what I mean? Like sometimes the thing you struggle with the most, if you even get average at it, you're like, yeah, but damn, I put in the work to get average at that lift, you know? Yep. Yep. That's cool. That's cool. Okay. Last but not least, number four. What's next for Brandon Smitley? What are you working on? What are you excited about anything? I really hope in the next year and a half ish, I, I hope that we
0: are building our own space. I think, oh. we've, maxim, I think we've maximized nice. our current space in terms of what we can put it in there. I mean, there's, we've got room to move around, which that's another topic for another day, just having a space in your facility to operate. Yes. But there's nothing really need to add in terms of now that we've Got everything just sorted out. Everything looks good. It flows well. Now it's about building up the revenue and the client base just a little bit more. Our lease ends in about a year and a half, so my fingers are crossed that by the time that paperwork comes around, we're ready to say, "Hey, you know, we're ready to push this on." We're going to cross our fingers. We can maybe you know get like a year extension that we can yeah. build. But yes. you know, that's kind of where our mind is at right now. Um, we're seven thousand square feet and it's done well, so we're hoping to go for about ten to fourteen, and then that's. Hopefully, where are Thursdays for the next 30,
1: 40 years. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, Brandon, it's been great catching up with you. I knew that it would be. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? So I'm on Instagram, obviously. My name is just B Smitley, just my first initial
0: and last name. Um, I also write for Elite FTS. It's been a bit, but I'm trying to get back into that. But all my articles, especially if you're into the powerlifting, conjugate stuff like that, all of my articles are on Elite FTS. I had a log there for years, and those are all archives. So there's even many articles in those logs, so to speak. Um, there's even Q&As that I did over there as well. Um, but those are probably the two best places that you can find me. Uh, I'm not really on Facebook a whole lot or anything like that. So that's I try to do good in selling a lot of uh, good education on Instagram too. So if you're looking for a somebody to follow that puts out sometimes controversial stuff as we yeah. talked about, uh, but yes. very informational based pieces. Uh, if I'm putting it on there, I truly believe it. I'm not just trying to stir up crap. So yeah. those are where you'd be able to
1: find me. Yeah. Uh, just to say, you've got you've got good stuff on there. It's always engaging, thoughtful, like you said, and sometimes controversial without trying to be that way. I think sometimes right, right. people just get very emotional about training stuff. So yes, yeah, it's all good, man. Well, Brandon, again, thanks so much for coming on. This was really great, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's show with Brandon. Really hope you enjoyed it. As I alluded to up top, I feel like there was some really great back and forth in this episode. You know, we're both very passionate about helping young athletes. And look, if you train young athletes, there are very real struggles that you're going to run into these days, whether it's the shape and condition of the kids that are coming into your door, whether it's the time commitments that they have and all of the extracurricular activities they may have between their sports schedule and competition schedule, there's a lot of competing demands. So trying to find ways to convince not only the kids, but the parents of the value of coming in and training on a regular basis, I thought that was probably my favorite part of the show. So if you enjoyed this episode, please do me one small favor, go right now to wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, anywhere you consume podcasts and hit the subscribe button so you know each and every Friday when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support, love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.